0: Welcome to episode 305 of the Reformed Brotherhood.
1: I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you.
0: Nothing in this world I do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're on and continuing that soteriology tour, and we're going to get into some some really great stuff on this episode, principally asking and answering the question, what is faith? So if you're looking for the definitive answer, you'll have to wait a couple minutes, but rest assured, it is coming into your ear holes shortly. But of course before we do that, everybody's favorite. We got to deny, we got to affirm. It's in our tradition. It's all things theological and it helps everybody make sense of the world. So let's go
1: positive this time first. What are you
0: affirming with this week?
1: So I'm affirming a book. Most people know that I've been on this sort of like productivity note-taking kick. And I'm affirming a book uh, by Tiago Forte, I'm sure most of our listeners have probably run into a Ted talk or a YouTube video from Tiago Forte in the past, but this was the book that he wrote that kind of kicked off his productivity note-taking journaling empire. It's called building a second brain. And the subtitle is a proven method to organize your digital life and unlock your creative potential. So the book is, um, it's pretty straightforward. It's, it's a note-taking method, but it's more than that. It's a method to externalize sort of the data that we accumulate and the goal is you externalize the data you structure your notes and your note taking software he's very app heavy so he doesn't he doesn't have a method that allows you to do it in like an analog notebook um and then not only does that allow you to have a way to quickly like recall and bring back the information that you've collected the data you've collected but it frees up your brain and your mind to do more of the thinking part of it, the analyzing part of it, asking questions. Um, And then if you combine this with something like the Zettelkasten method um, or even something like bullet journaling, uh, it ends up being a pretty powerful way to kind of accumulate data and then also ask questions of that body of data in a way that sort of organically brings forward information and answers and, and sparks curiosity. So I've been reading it. I'm a little bit, I'm probably about, I don't know, a third of the way through and I'm really, really enjoying it. And it's sort of changing the way that I've been thinking about note taking. So he also has a video that he has online. Um, that is, I don't remember exactly what it's called, but it's about, it's about like choosing your note taking app. And in the beginning when he talks about the different note taking styles, the different kinds of people and who takes notes in what ways. Um, and he just breaks them into these four different kind of like archetypes of, I think there's the, the architect, Uh, which is like the person who wants to build like a comprehensive system of data management there's the gardener who's kind of cultivating a body of knowledge and it's more about discovery and growth there's uh the um librarian who's all about like pulling together information and capturing every piece of data and then there's a a fourth archetype he calls the student which is just uh like sort of like on demand whatever i need for note taking it's it's like Sometimes you need to take notes because you're going to have to recall it on a test. Sometimes you're preparing for a paper. So it's different styles kind of baked into one. So check it out. It's it's available on Amazon on Kindle for like 12 bucks. Uh, you could listen to it on audiobook, but I think this is one of those ones where you probably really need to read it because you need to be able to stop and sort of process and write through and, and try some of the exercises. But I'm really enjoying it. It's a easy read and it's useful no matter what kind of uh, learner you are, no matter what you're doing. We all have an occasion to need to take a note down once in a while. So even just the oddball note that you take down during a meeting or if you're doing sermon notes or something like that, um, even that oddball note, if thinking about how you take that note differently or how you take that note down, um, in a different sense, I think would be beneficial. So check it out. It's called Building a Second Brain. I'm using Obsidian, uh, but it works just as well with something like Notion or Evernote or even just like the Apple Notes program that comes on your iPhone or Google Keep, which you can get on your Android. So check it out. It's pretty cool. Plus with a name like Tiago Forte,
0: you get a real, that's a real crowd pleaser.
1: Yeah, there are some names that just make you an authority by definition. Like, like Adonis Vidu, that's a name right. that like, That's an authoritative name. Yeah. yep, Yeah. It's a name with force in this case, quite literally. Yes. Yeah. 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 What's really weird is he doesn't look like, uh, just from like looking at him when you see like his music videos, he doesn't look like he comes from any sort of like Hispanic or Latin descent. So I'm not sure where, where that forte comes from, like in terms of the linguistic background, but yeah, it's a very like Latin Hispanic name, but he does not appear to be from that lineage. But who knows?
0: This is a good affirmation. I'll tell you why. It's because, like we've talked about before, this idea of systematizing what you're learning is super undervalued. Most of the time, we just kind of push that to the side and say it's for people in a particular profession or vocation or season of life. Students should do this. If you're studying for a test, you should do that. If you're the kind of person that needs to recall vast amounts of like particular data or trivial knowledge, then you should do that. But I think we've been outspoken before in our podcast about how there is something about a created order of knowledge that God has ushered into our world and that we are to take dominion even over that. So anything that allows us to systematize that, to understand it better, to internalize it into the essence of our being, and then to be able to use it productively for God's kingdom, to teach others, to bring our skill sets to bear in productive and valuable ways, all of those things are taking dominion of God's creation. So there's yeah. a knowledge component to this, and I think it's worthwhile for everybody to explore what they can do. So when you read an article for a work, that you're actually, again, acquiring that information and being able to not just regurgitate it, but process it, use it in a way it's productive. And then, of course, there's what what else can we say about all the tools that are available to you to make sure that you can... Uh, Study the Bible, but then in your studying, like it's true studying. It's not just like intellectual scent, knowing more facts, but again, connecting, synergizing, synthesizing those facts so that we are led to greater praise and doxology, worship, and piety that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I would say, like, one of the great things that somebody could do is take the approach you've just described. Uh, Go look up Tiago Forte, and then pair that with great resources like, for instance, Logos Bible software, which is like an entry point into something that you can use that you ought to read and process. You have commentaries there. Take those notes into a way that's meaningful to you so that you can acquire
1: them, study them, process them, and then use them in your daily worship. Yeah. You could actually use, Logos has a pretty robust note-taking platform built into it, you could actually use Logos as your note-taking platform, and that would right. work just fine. But here's just a concrete example of kind of how this methods work. And I'm still very new at it. But I was reading uh, the first two chapters of Gerhardus Voss's uh, systematic theology or his reform dogmatics. And I've been, and we'll talk about some of this in my denial, but I've been trying to make sure that I'm I'm up to snuff and beefed up on my theology proper since that's been a real active uh, debate going on. And so as I'm reading, I took this note. And I'm using uh, obsidian and I'm using sort of a hybrid with the Zettelkasten method. But I took the note and it says, Only God has true knowledge of himself. And so then what I did with that is, Well, I want to expand on that thought. So I created a second note and it says, uh, Only God has true knowledge of himself. And I started to write down things about ectypal and archetypal theology, right? And so archetypal theology. I was like, well, it'd be good for me to have a quick reference of what that definition is. So I hopped over to Logos. I looked up archetypal theology. It brought me to a resource in my uh, in my library called the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Forms. So I just copied that form copied that definition into a new note. I linked it over. It has the Latin term theologia archetypa. And so I linked to that as well. So if I ever see that in another document, I can do a function in Obsidian or cross link that. And so it was real easy for me to start with reading, just jotting down simple, basic notes, right? A simple thought of only God has true knowledge of himself. And then when I came to that the next day, actually, and re- reviewing my notes, which is part of this second brain thing, is you have a, a rhythm of reviewing the notes you've taken. I went, that's a good thing that could use some more explanation, some more definition. And then I was like, definition, I can grab a definition right out of Logos. And then I can add links. So if I ever need to get back to where this was in Logos, I can use Logos to create a hyperlink directly to that entry in that resource that I can now click on this in Obsidian, it will pop Logos up on my computer, it'll open that resource up, it'll go straight to where I was reading. So you can use a lot of these resources in a synergistic way. It's like the one thing that Calvinists wanna do that's synergistic. And um, and it really is like fruitful and productive. And it takes like dry notes, like yeah, I can write down only God has true knowledge of himself or the names of God reveal the identity of God. That's another one. And I've, I've cross-linked this now to a place where James White denies the fact that uh, the I am statement in Exodus is related to divine aseity. He, he kind of rejects that implication of the text. Well, I can cross link that now to a place where I was reading in Voss where Voss makes the exact opposite assertion. So now I have all that stuff cross-referenced. It's, it's really a, a pretty elegant system. And I think pairing it up with Logos Bible software is a great idea. You can get Logos. uh, You can get in on the ground floor for $50 with the fundamentals package, which gives you all their basic tools, as well as a lot of resources and and some free eBooks. You can get that for $50 if you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash fundamentals, or if you know that you want to use a higher level of Logos, which I don't know why you wouldn't want to use a higher level of Logos, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos, and you can pick up one of their higher level base packages. Uh, which you can get the reformed package it has all sorts of great resources. And I was reading uh, I was reading Voss, even though I own the hard copies, I was reading at work on my tablet right out of Lagos and the pages all match up. So it's it's really a great book. Uh, it's a great way to get more use out of the things that you're reading because sometimes you sit and read a book and you might retain some of it, but for the most part, you, you know, it's in one ear hole, out the other ear hole or whatever. Um, but when you're taking down notes not in just a trying to capture data, but really asking questions of the book and t- taking your notes in light of the questions that you're asking of the book. That's where you're really going to start to synthesize and see fruit out of, that, uh, out of that study. And I do the same thing when I do Bible study or when I'm watching, watching a documentary or listening to a podcast, I'll jot down some notes in this, this same kind of method and it works great.
0: Yeah. The bottom line is knowledge is compartmentalized, but wisdom is networked. So any tool that helps us to, again, pull together the way that our our brain naturally functions, the way God has created us, is to pull together disparate ideas into a cohesiveness that is robust and fully orbed. So these are great things. Again, you can chalk this up to what a time to be alive that, you know, used to be you really kind of had to develop your knowledge. That's why people spent so much time studying and focusing was to memorize pieces of disparate data and unite them in their own minds and then write their own pieces that pulled all that stuff together. And then that process would perpetuate and iterate over and over and over again. So it's just a great time to be able to take your learning to the next level, wherever it is and whatever it is that you want to learn. There's lots of great options out there for you to do that.
1: Yeah. What about you? What are you uh, affirming today?
0: In the last episode, I affirmed with the book, Be Thou My Vision, which is part of my daily worship, and I encourage all our listeners to check that out. And I am providing and affirming with what I think is the perfect compliment. So the best prayers are the ones that God himself has written By the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit through his chosen vessels. And so I'm affirming with, in particular, making the Psalms your prayer book every day, using that as the kindling for all prayers, actually starting there, even if there are things in your heart that you want to pray, starting with the Psalms and just going through them one by one. Don't worry about finding the one that you think suits you in that particular day, but just start with Psalm 1 and just go all the way through and use that as like the springboard. It's gonna be, it's like the rocket fool that's gonna like just launch your prayers, I think in the stratosphere. And so even with more specificity, I'm affirming with a particular version of the Psalms and something I think might be helpful to people. And that is if you're gonna make it your prayer book, get it as the book. So get a copy of the Psalms, just the Psalms if you can. Or of course, they're usually sold like the Psalms, the New Testament, Proverbs all together. And I have one in particular everybody should pick up because it's super affordable. I've been using it myself. I really enjoy the printing, the whole style of the book. It's super handsome. It's affordable. So here's what you do. You go to 316publishing.com and what you're looking for is the Legacy Standard Bible New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs. The faux leather edition, as we record this in the present day, is just $12, and it's beautiful. The reason why I'm recommending the LSB version is because we're talking about using these specifically as prayers, that we ourselves will pray through them, that they we have springboard for our prayers in our private time of daily worship, is because what's particular to like the NASB and its more modern iteration, the, LA, the LSB is that God's name is always going to be translated as Yahweh. And so uh, there's a great intimacy that you find impounded in this translation that's particularly helpful for prayer. So you're constantly being drawn back to the fact that you were speaking to God or of God in a way that is profoundly intimate and greatly reverent. So I'm affirming with make the Psalms your prayer book. You will never be disappointed with this. And the second, I highly affirm the LSB version. Just go out and get the Psalms version, just the the Psalms itself, and put that on your desk or your nightstand and make that your prayer book. Make that yeah. your normative practice every day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to do it. I, um, I have the Trinity Hymnal Psalter app on my phone, and I have made a practice of just trying to sing a Psalm once or twice uh, a day. Um, which is a slightly different variation of what you're talking about. And I think the the Psalters are usually better understood as paraphrases rather than translations. But um, it's really made a big difference in my own prayer life. Um, and sometimes even when I'm having like a bad day or a rough time at work, I'll just pull that out and I'll just... I'll let the music play and I'll read the words along with the music in my head. I don't even sing out loud. It makes a big difference. And I think praying the Psalms, memorizing the Psalms, incorporating them into your active prayer life uh, can only make your prayer life more potent. And And it makes it easier to pray too, which is is always a, a good thing.
0: Yes. It's like a primer, right? It gets everything pumped up. It gets you pumped up. It gets you ready. And the more I do this, the more I find that I'm praying back to God or at least inspired by, so to speak, the very language here. And it changes you. So of course we come with needs and God wants us to come to him with our needs. And yet I think when we pause and go to the scriptures first, it refines all those things as we then start to pray them after we have come into, as it were, like stepped into the stream of prayer life with God by going into the Psalms first rather than trying to dig our own trench in which to, to pull all this water. So I think it's really helpful. And I think at one point, like McDonald's used to have like the the double stack, you know, like two yeah. big patties. Yeah. So I'm gonna double I'm gonna double stack this now based on what you said. So here's what I've been doing is I've been reading the Psalm and then I go to the Psalter the app that you're talking about. And what I find that it's all the more rich for me because that music is often a paraphrase because it's usually in meter and it's in rhyme in English. And so what I find is it's all the more rich because I've just come from the translation of the Psalms. And now I find it saying the same thing, of course, but in a slightly perhaps different way or metered way. And it's all the more beautiful. So it's a bit like you've read the book and then you go watch the movie. And it's this wonderful way to see everything told the same story, but maybe in a slightly different way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Double Gotta stack. I love the Psalms. Double stack. All right. So what are you denying against? So I, I'm denying, I don't know, I don't know what to call this. It, it's sort of like a compound denial. It's a compound uh, situation. Uh, I'm denying labeling our opponents with things that they wouldn't recognize of themselves. So for example, I reference this theology proper uh hubbub, dust up, whatever you want to call it online. And one of the things that's frustrating is um, neither side of the debate, there's the side, roughly speaking, that's arguing for classical theism as understood as a sort of a lineage that I would say, doesn't begin with, but sort of follows its its lineage through Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages and scholasticism, which is then picked up in the Reformed, particularly the Reformed scholastics, and then therefore makes its way into things like the Westminster Confession of Faith. Our side of the argument, we're calling ourselves classical theists. Uh, we're, we're typically being called Thomists by people who want to reject that. I'm not a Thomist. I think Thomas Aquinas had a lot of things that he got wrong. Um, Contrarily, or conversely, I've asked multiple pe- people, time, you know, multiple times, l- sort of like leading voices in this other side of the debate. What is it that you would like us to call you? Because if I pick a term, it's probably not going to be something you would agree to or recognize of yourself. And I want to be charitable. So, what is it you'd like us to call you? And and they they say things like reformed biblicists. and I'm like, well, that doesn't really work because reformed and biblicist are contrary terms. So you can't pick that one. So I, I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm denying this idea that we should label our opponents unless we are labeling them in a way that they themselves would recognize. So almost always when there's a sort of a bifurcated debate like this, the the name that ends up sticking uh, is the one that your opponents have given you. So Calvinists, we're called Calvinists because people who were opposed to Reformed theology called us Calvinists as sort of a pejorative label. And so we eventually just adopted it. Right. So I, I don't I don't know exactly where to go with that, except that it it's it's not a charitable move to pick a derisive term for your opponents or a term you would consider to be derisive and then use that as the label. So the only reason people like James White are calling us Thomists is because they think that's a bad thing. It's not actually because it's accurate. Almost everybody I know who's kind of on this side of the debate has said in one way or another, we're not really Thomists. Like we're, that's not really what we are. Thomism is a specific historical movement, and we are not part of that, um, except in the very most broadest sense in that we hold to a theology proper that Thomas also held to and was one of the sort of big figures in the Middle Ages of. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know how to resolve that. I've tried to ask the question of what do you want us to call you? And, and we don't, I either don't get responses or I don't get useful responses. Uh, and it really just shows, it shows a sort of disrespect and disregard for your interlocutor, your opponent, your dialogue partner, whatever you want to call them. It shows this disregard for them that I think is just not helpful to start the start the debate off on. Well, the irony about labels, of course, is that
0: they're rarely put together and applied by the people who want to be called that. Right. I mean, even Christian was a derogatory term. It wasn't right. ingratiating when it was applied. So there's a weirdness in this that's easier, for, of course, for an opponent to pick out part of something that they disagree with you on and then craft a name around that because it's easy for them to accept that name because they've done it to be derogatory right. versus the person who says like, well, what is it that you are? This, you know, like the classic example of this in a much less profound way is when you ask like, you know, an indie band, what kind of music do you play? And somebody would be like, oh, well, you sound like Pearl Jam. Be like, no, 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 no. We sound nothing like that. <laughs> and then you listen to it and you'd be like, it's basically Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam. You know, so it's this idea that it's, it's much harder because every person is complex. Every right. idea is complex. Even theology itself is complex. And so to say to somebody like, well, what is it that you want me to say to, about you? that we can distill down into a single word or a group of words that encapsulate perfectly the essence of your being and all the things which you stand for and understand and articulate. It's very difficult. So there is like a great irony here. I I think in your denial is this idea of kind of at the center being gracious and kind and understanding and listening and not trying to put into a box so much, certainly not putting into a box to be argumentative or purposely hurtful, yeah. or to try to convey something that's not true. So there's all this stuff about straw man argumentation. But even just beyond that, it is what is our responsibility when we're going to engage somebody in reasonable and genuine dialogue? Yeah. And part of that is not applying these labels in this kind of superficial and hurtful way. And I think that's really what it is. Like, don't we understand that at the heart that? Sometimes these things are used to be inflammatory and not actually even used to be
1: helpful right. in classification. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, we have to make classifications, right? I, I can't say, I mean, I suppose I could, but it, it, it gets to be cumbersome for me to say every time uh, whether we're talking about eternal functional subordination for me to say, well, the theology that's represented by Wayne Gruden, Bruce Bruce Ware, Owen Strahan, and Douglas Wilson, like that gets cumbersome. It, it impedes conversation and discussion and impedes writing. So we figure out a shorthand. In that case, we've been able to use the shorthand for them that they've found for themselves, right? They, they've they invented the term eternal functional subordination, internal right. relationship, blah, blah, blah. Um, or, or it gets cumbersome to say, um, you know, the, uh, the views that are being put forward by James White, Owen Strahan, and Jeff Johnson out of you know Grace Baptist Theological Seminary. I've started calling it like the Grace Bap- the GBTS view or the GBTS school of of theology proper because that's the the best way that I can sort of summarize it in a fair way that it is a theology that's being primarily advocated by these bigger names coming out of that one seminary in Alabama right? Um, but even that can be, even that can end up being kind of derogatory. There's people that will talk about the Escondido school of, of theology in, uh, reference to like reformed two kingdoms or radical two kingdoms theology that are using that in a derisive view, referring to Westminster Seminary California. Well, there are people at that school that don't hold the more, I don't want to call it extreme, but the more, um, robust versions of of two kingdom theology that someone like Van Drunen or Horton holds. There are people at that school that don't hold that. So even calling that the the Escondido school of thought isn't even accurate. So it's just, it's labels are tough. And that's why I think it's almost always best when we can to allow our opponents or the people who are on the opposite side of the discussion to self-define and self-label themselves, because then we are we are allowing them to do that in a way that is respectful to their to their person, kind of their personhood. Like we're respecting them as an an equal partner in the conversation. Um, And we're also, it's more accurate. Usually it's more accurate because they've picked a term that's actually accurate of their view. Now, I think in this one, like reformed biblicist, that's even started out because people were saying this is a biblicist view and they were kind of, now they've taken that on as kind of a badge of honor. Like, of course I want to be a biblicist. Well, that's not, that's not really what the term means. So it, it's muddy. The waters are muddy. It's tough. I think it's just a matter of trying to be respectful and being accurate kind of compels us to allow our, uh, our dialogue partners to, to define their own terms and their own view and their own label. Right on. And of course, while shorthand can be super
0: convenient because it is shorter than the long form version... At the same time, it's one of those things, some of these names are just like purposely obscuring. It doesn't actually tell you anything. So it's better just to ask. And I I like what you're saying is have some good dialogue. I think that's what the Lord would have us to do is, is have meaningful, appropriate, respectful dialogue, try to understand what the other person means. And there's a difference in my mind as well between like citing or expressing a bona fide or quantified idea or theological position such as EFS, which by itself is not an adjective. Right. It's not we're saying like they're EFSers. Right. I mean, we've, we've kind of played with that a little bit. We've been fast and loose to some extent, but it's different when somebody levies like a name against you. That is an adjective. Yeah. Usually that's a sign that it is meant to be derogatory. Yep. So it's just one of those things where like, just don't play that game. Just don't yeah. play that game. Yeah. What about you? What are you denying today? Well, we're for full-service podcast, as usual, and my denial is much less serious than the one that, that you've uh, given, but, uh, but hopefully of equal weight in a different way. So there's this thing when you see an object that has been designed with such practicality and beauty that in hindsight it seems completely improbable that it should be any other way but that way. And so an example would be, we, the, this is remarkable to me, and I, I've known this for quite some time, I think about this a lot actually, the patent for wheels on a suitcase was registered in 1970. Like Macy's first sold suitcases in October of 1970 with wheels. we had suitcases for like a hundred years before then, but the (laughs) wheels did not come 1970. And now like if you go buy a suitcase, it doesn't have wheels. Wouldn't you rightly be
1: like, what the heck you want me to carry this thing? I mean, no one would buy a suitcase with no wheels. Right. I I don't think you could even buy a suitcase with no wheels. There's so, it's so ubiquitous Chad bird that, um, (laughs) That you just can't, you can't find it without them.
0: I think it would be difficult. Like you'd have to go out of your way and you'd have to be that person that was like, no, I don't want the wheels. Yes, I know that the wheels are helpful, but no, I don't want yeah. the wheels. So that, there's a good example, like something nowadays that just seems like so beautifully and practically designed that you'd be like, why would it not be this other thing? It seems yeah. so obvious in hindsight. So here's what I'm denying against. And this is going to be a denial that also has a compliment that is an affirmation. I'm denying against the single pole plunger. That's right. The plunger. And here's what I'm telling you is better. There is a T-shaped plunger that I have now. And I'll get, I'll, do you want to know what it is? I'll give it to you. It's called the Corky Korky, K-O-R-K-Y 96-4AM telescoping T-shaped handle Beehive Max universal plunger in black, $19. On Amazon. <laughs> this is a plunger just like it sounds. Instead of having like the pole that you have to awkwardly wrap your both hands around, somebody was finally oh, like, What if we just on. make the handle T shaped so that you have something to push down and pull up on? This, loved ones, is a game changer. So I'm denying against technology like the why have we for so long settled for a plunger? That one wasn't telescoping, which is super handy for storing it, but two had just like that single, that upright pole so that you had to like kind of awkwardly like grab it like you were trying to slide down a pole. It's just totally awkward. So yeah. this thing is awesome. It's got like 5,839 ratings on Amazon, four and a half stars. And if you're looking, by the way, this is just free of charge. If you're looking for some good commentary... Go take a look at the comments <laughs> and the <laughs> reviews of this plunger because it's it's just good, wholesome reading. There are a lot of poo references, but it's good, wholesome reading. So Corky 96-4AM telescoping T-shaped handle Beehive Max Universal Plunger in black. It's awesome. Nice. So I'm denying against that. I, not, that not that plunger, but the old plunger.
1: I will just say... Um... First of all, there are multiple kinds of plungers in terms of like the shape of the head of the plunger for different things. Yes, which what a what a time to be alive, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but it's a little bit hard to conceptualize exactly what Jesse's talking about if you haven't looked this up. Uh, but now that I've seen this plunger, I'm I'm wondering how quickly I can get to the store to replace <laughs> all my plungers because you're right. This is now like you can't unsee this. It's one of those things that it, it's like, of course, there should be. Something on the top of the handle that you actually grip onto that gives you the leverage you need to to really plunge out that toilet. And m- most of the listeners who've been with us for a while know that I actually live in Jesse's childhood home, which is the parsonage of our church. And the the toilets here uh, they have challenges sometimes. It's old plumbing, and uh, I I make use of a plunger pretty frequently. So I might have to pick one of these up. It seems like it could improve my plunging experience.
0: I'm telling you, it's a game changer. It might be helpful
1: for me to describe it as if you,
0: if anybody's of a certain era and remembers like the old Looney Tunes cartoons where there's like a TNT box, yes, you know, and you'd push down the plunger handle, and you, the handle itself would be um, parallel or per, yeah, parallel to like the box itself. It's like that. You're pushing down that. Just this just makes all the more sense to me. I was See, like, why have we been doing this all along?
1: When I first saw this, I thought that what it was is that the handle actually like pumped in and out like a butter churn and that was the plunging action. So that might even be like the next iteration of this is like a a plunger where you you don't have to like move the entire thing you just put the flange in there and the telescoping function is the plunging <laughs> function.
0: <laughs> so glad we got to the word flange already. Flange. I you know where I end up using this is why I actually use this thing a lot and why it's super helpful is Maybe I would love to hear if other brothers and sister listeners have this issue. My wife has this long, beautiful, glorious, thick hair. It likes to go everywhere. And so this means that it goes everywhere in our drains. And so in our bathtub, I often find that I need to get at it to pull that hair out. So I use the plunger actually, because it's really effective, but because like there's the faucet there And it's awkward because it's on a pole style. Like this thing is... The beast, (laughs) like it gets in there, and I have all the leverage I need. And I'm not like a plumbing expert, but there's been a lot of commentary on the reviews of this that the head itself is like particularly good at shaping into like whether you've got we've got European listeners, they have a different uh, style (laughs) toilets. And so, like, this thing is like apparently it conforms, it is the one plunger to rule all your drains. And so, it
1: it seems like it's wildly effective. So, it's it's been a while since we've had a, a, a denial and affirmation that is totally off topic that takes over our entire episode. So I I'm all for it. Let's just, this is no longer an episode about what is faith. This is now the reformed plunger cast, I think, but I'm, I'm here for it. This is great.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm talking. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the best segue I can possibly manufacture to, to bring us into Soteriology. Well, let me say it like this. We talked about this a little before we started. We're in again talking about soteriology. And really, I think what we were saying in our very short pre meeting is that when we talk about faith, we got to use the plunger of soteriology to really unclog the drain of faith and really understand, like get the gunk out of there so that we can actually understand what faith actually is. That's that's really horrific. That was pretty good.
1: Let me let me take a crack at it. So like, okay, so I'm looking at this, I'm looking at this plunger and I know, (laughs) I know the facts about how this plunger works. I can conceptualize the facts about how this plunger works and I can accept and assent to the truth of what these claims are. But if I really want to have faith in this plunger, then I need to purchase this plunger and really appropriate it to myself. I really (laughs) need to place my trust in this plunger for my plunging needs. uh, That's all I got.
0: That's as close to a perfect translation of Hebrews eleven as I've ever heard. Well, until next time, to... everyone.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you're—I mean, of course, I think we're both on the money here because we want to talk about what is faith, because. This is a question of first principles, isn't it? Yeah. And it's a question going back that has at its root this idea of the doctrine of salvation. And of course, this word gets interpreted lots of different ways. And it it is all over the Bible. I mean, our listeners are not going to be surprised by that. You know, in the Gospel of John, some iteration, some use, some form of the word faith is represented almost over 100 times. And I think that most people will go to a passage with good intention, like Hebrews 11.1, 1, which famously reads, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that might sound... Like a definition of faith, but I think we're indebted here, as we on the outside as we start this conversation, to somebody like uh, Machen, who you just talked about before, because I like that he rightly said that Hebrews eleven gives us more of a description of faith than a definition of faith. Right, and if all of that is true, we're trying to understand like what is actual faith, then it's something that we ought to pay attention to the de- difference between like the definition and the st- distinction of what it actually means.
1: Yeah, and I think we were talking beforehand. Faith is one of those things that I think most people think they understand what it means. And a lot of times those kinds of terms or words, when we have a word where most Christians think they know what it means, um, what we end up finding out is that people actually have a pretty wide definition of what that means. And in some cases, that's relatively harmless. But in this case, how we understand faith, because faith is so central to uh, to what it means to be justified, right? Faith, faith is the sole instrumental means of justification for the believer, right? That's that's the that's the Protestant distinctive, um, along with sola scriptura. But even that is not always always in place for Protestants. But I don't think you can rightly say that a person actually is a Protestant in the classic sense of the term if they don't hold, in some sense, that faith is the sole instrument of justification. Um, once you get outside of that and you have other things being instrumental means of justification, you're no longer a Protestant. You might, you might have some Protestant tendencies. You might reject Rome on certain aspects, but you're not a Protestant. But because faith is so central in that definition of reformed reformational theology, if you don't, if you don't have the same definition of faith that another person does you may have a radically different understanding of what justification itself is or how one is right. justified and so you know we can we could do a whole episode on like technical definitions of faith and and all that stuff i don't think that that's super useful so before we move on i'm going to read real quick the definition of of what justifying faith is that's given to us in the westminster larger catechism so the question 72 is what is justifying faith the answer is justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and word of God, whereby he being convinced of his sins and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation." And so there's there's a couple phrases in there that you would recognize from my little ham-fisted attempt at a segue there, right? The classic Protestant definition of faith has three parts. There's the knowledge or notitia is the is the notitia is the Latin term the knowledge of the facts of salvation. So things like the Trinity how the hypostatic union, at least on a surface level, you have to understand that Jesus is truly God and truly man. There are certain um, historical facts. We referenced that last week, the the crucifixion, the resurrection. Um, and then a certain set of orthodox facts that one must know exists. If you don't know that Jesus is a thing, if you don't know that Jesus existed, if you somehow grew up in a culture where Jesus is not talked about, you can't possibly be saved. You just can't because you don't have the, the knowledge requisite for salvation. The second component is in Latin is a census. Sometimes it's assent or acknowledgement. And that's simply acknowledging that these facts that you recognize are, are floating around out there, assent that they're actually true. So one can one can recognize that the fact of the resurrection is a fact that some people hold, that that's a truth claim that some people make. But there's a separate step of assenting to the truth of that truth claim and appropriating it as actually true. And then the final step of, or the final component of faith is a uh, fiducia or it's trust. And that's where you actually appropriate this knowledge and assent to the truth of that knowledge. And you, you appropriate that and you recognize that that truth is something you must rest and rely on. And so that comes together for us to say like, okay, I, I know that there's a truth claim that Jesus died for the sins of the elect and that he Uh, He has done what is necessary to bring them back into a a proper relationship with God. So there's that truth claim. And now I assent to the fact that that truth claim is true. And now I trust, I trust Christ that that is a true thing for me, that there's a, there's a positive benefit for me, that that's a truth for me. Those are the three components of faith. So we we could go through each of those. We're not going to do that. I think one of the benefits of the fact that we've got a pretty big back catalog, we've talked about this stuff before, but right. what I think is going to be useful, and, and I think where Jesse and I want to go, is where do where does a corruption of particularly that third component of faith, but not always just that third component, but where does a corruption of the definition of faith? Where are the problems that that brings us? Surprisingly, a lot of them are kind of internal to the broader Reformed world. There's a lot of people within the Reformed world, big names in the Reformed world, the sort of Reformed sphere of influence that are messing this up and have been messing this up for decades. And it's all simply a matter of bad definitions. It's really kind of strange how it's happened. So that's where I think we want to go with our episode tonight is to talk about some of these different kinds of movements and positions and how their um, alternate definition of faith has kind of, kind of set people off track of what the gospel truly is.
0: And that's the distinction between definition and description. So I think there's a lot that we read in the scriptures that give us descriptions of faith, but aren't wholly encompassing of all that the faith is. And in other words, again, Romans 11 gives a description of faith, but it's not all that faith is. Right. And, and just to kind of, I would say, jump on, so to speak, what you've just said, I've always envisioned those quintessential components. Again, the first principles, notitia, uh, census, and fidicia. To me, it's always been about this idea of it's a, a, a kind of like a pyramid Of increasing magnitude. You're moving along. And even that, it falls down as like a metaphor, because I'm not saying that at the top is this sense of trust. What I'm saying, though, is I think one of the things that will divide us, even when it comes to the Reformed tradition, is who is responsible for each of those things. Right. And you'll find people saying that, well, there's at some point a synergistic component and traditionally the foreign perspective has been even in all of those things, even in the base level of notitia, this idea of knowledge that you need a teacher and that teacher needs to be outside of yourself. Right. Anything that you learn, whether that is... Just generic calculus or whether it is fundamental principles of the Christian faith, that the enlightenment of that knowledge, even before you get to ascent, but the enlightenment that the knowledge comes to you first, usually outside of yourself, because you may not have access to it, of course, outside of God's grace. So there we find at every level, at least as I understand the scriptures, and we see it actually applied practically in our lives, God is present. He is doing that work. So this is in some way anticipating like the final question, which is, well, where does faith come from? Because so many of the compromised definitions that you've already been kind of bringing in or intimating have something to do with the fact that we do something, that there's something that we have to do. And something is said about, you know, oftentimes when people speak about faith, it's this idea of like hoping against hope, you know, that people say one thing is going to happen, but I have faith that the opposite is going to happen, and that faith is grounded just in my ability to manufacture some kind of willing suspension of disbelief, or to presume that what I really want to occur is going to somehow come into play. Yeah. And that's completely outside of what the scriptures teach.
1: Yeah, so just just to go one more spot in one of the catechisms, I want to just read question 31 of the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Because we've been talking, the last couple episodes we were talking about was this broad category of the effectual calling in its its two parts. We broke it up into the inward and the outward call, which is a pretty classic distinction. And question 31 says, what is effectual calling? It says, effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And so... Even that first level, that first uh, step of faith, or that first component of faith—the the knowledge of saving facts—on a certain level, people are able to obtain the knowledge of those saving facts by natural means. Right? Anybody can pick up a Bible, and they can understand and appreciate the truth claims that are being made. Um, I would even say that on a certain level, some people could assent to. At least some of those truth claims on a natural basis, right? Someone could look at the Bible; they could assent to all of the the historical facts of uh, the the Nicene Creed, for example, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he died. Someone could even assent to the the truth claims and acknowledge them as true. That the best explanation of the empty tomb is somehow the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What no one can do apart from the moving, uh, the secret special inner workings of the Holy Spirit, the, the inward call that we talked about last week, is trust in those saving facts, to trust in those as true for them. No one can say, I believe Jesus Christ died for me unless the Holy Spirit does these things in effectual calling. And that's why, you know, someone like Scott Clark or, uh, you know, um, Bob Godfrey, somebody like those figures, are going to say that the the canons of Dort, the Synod of Dort, was not just an intramural, internal, reformed debate about the nature of election and like they're they're not going to say that this was some sort of like academic exercise between the Arminian you know the armenian remonstrants and the the broader reformed community this was a debate and an argument over the very nature of salvation itself and that's why bob godfrey's book on this is called saving the reformation because if you get this part wrong and faith is something that we muster up for ourselves or even something that we co- cooperate with like the seed that the holy spirit plants within us we we nurture that we receive it we allow that to grow we foster that you've lost the entire foundation of what it is that reformed reformational protestant biblical theology biblical justification by you know by grace alone through faith alone argues and that's why when we have some of these movements and i'll just i'll just name them lordship salvation federal vision new perspective on paul I don't know what to go back to my denial. I don't know exactly what to call John Piper's view. If I want to be real derogatory, I call it salvation by feels alone. But what it is, is he's arguing in this newest book, what is saving faith? He argues that affectional or affections are a, are a component of saving faith. So if one does not have a, the experience of treasuring Christ above all other things, if one does not experience that in their own life, they don't have saving faith. And so these these movements, these different groups have taken the definition of faith and they've swapped out trust, which is a resting and receiving of Christ. It's a passive thing that the Holy Spirit does for us and to us. They've swapped that out for something else, right? In Lordship Salvation, it's, it's submission and obedience, Right. So for John MacArthur in the first edition of Gospel According to Jesus, he he went through and he took this classic definition of faith, and instead of trust and faith and the, the the fiducia being the last component, he literally argued the last component is submission and obedience. That that is a and repentance. That is a component part of what it means to have faith. Not a not an inseparable flip side of the same coin. I have some questions about that, but I think that that's okay. But I, I have some concerns about how that's phrased sometimes, but an actual component of faith. So now repentance and obedience and submission becomes a component of the instrumental means of grace. So that's where we want to go is just talk a little bit. We don't have a lot of time left, but talk a little bit now about how each of these different movements, what they swap out for faith and how that corrupts the gospel.
0: So let me throw this out there because I, I think this is important. And I don't think we actually disagree on this, but I want to clarify a point and press on something. And that is, I know what you're saying, this idea of that anyone who can pick up a Bible, but that, that's kind of the point I'm making from the very beginning about this idea of notitia. Not everybody can pick up a Bible. Right. So, so yeah, first yeah. we understand that coming to this basic idea, the access point to knowledge about of the scriptures is itself something that God gives us, which is yeah. why he gives the you know the great commission for us to go out. And then even beyond that, I would say even picking it up in reading it, this idea of actually knowing, before you even give, get to the point of essential, like giving intellectual sense to it, knowing that, knowing what is true, knowing it in its, its fullness is still something that must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Because this is the same argument, you know, cut to Peter, who's like, yo, have you guys read Paul? Because some of the stuff that he says is like really complicated. I don't understand it. Yeah. So this idea like, when we come with the second commandment violation saying, listen, if you slap up, an image of Jesus, what we're saying is you can't make this distinction by saying, well, I'm just depicting the human side. Because when you do that, you're not actually appropriately reflecting God because no image of God can be appropriately reflected in something. And if you bifurcate it purposefully, you're doing the greatest service possible. That's a bit like the same person that has the uninformed, unenlightened knowledge that can be like, well, yeah, I've read the Bible. And Jesus is like, yeah, he seems like he's God. Or that, that's not accurate knowledge. And so, like even at that first level, what we require is God to come and inform. So what you'll find in all these other like subsequent things that we're about to talk about these these other views is you're going to find some corruption of those things where I would argue God is not fully involved in some way. Yeah, and so because of that it comes against, like vehemently against the scriptures. It somehow imposes upon ourselves in some small way that faith is the thing that we manufacture or add to if we just had the right access, if we can see it for ourselves, if God someone would speak to us, if we would lay down our lives, if we'd give an increasing degree of surrender, that somehow our faith would be made whole. And that's where we get into trouble.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we, we did a whole episode on Lordship Salvation, so I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on that. And if I'm being really honest, I haven't finished Piper's book, so I don't want to speak too strongly on that particular element. We also did episodes on Federal Vision and New Perspective on Paul, but uh, those are our double-digit episodes, so it's probably time for us to come back to those subjects again anyways. <laughs> so the, the Federal Vision, this is, a, this is one of those uh, perennial issues within Reformed Theology. And, and a lot of it is because of the gravity of the person who is Doug Wilson. So I'm going to try to separate my own personal feelings about Doug Wilson as an individual person and in his own character foibles and flaws and try to stick to the theological elements of this. But Federal Vision theology... Although it's not a super unified movement, there is enough of commonality within the different parties to be able to sort of treat it as a unified movement. Federal vision theology more or less argues that that last component of uh, of faith, that fiducia, which we we are translating and understanding as trust or faith, it's a it's a resting and receiving of Christ Himself. It's not it's not just about believing or understanding facts. It's not just about assenting to them. It's about actually grasping onto Christ as he has grasped onto us. Right? He initiates that. He's the first one who grabs us, but then there's a reflex action of faith where we now respond and we've received him by faith. And by faith, we now grasp onto him. We, we cling to him. We embrace him. We freely embrace him Uh, offered to us in the gospel as the shorter catechism says what federal vision theology does though is they take that reflex action of faith and instead of it being about resting and receiving christ it's now about faithfulness it's about particularly faithfulness in sacramental actions but it's about faithfulness and it creates this two-stage justification that if you go to scott clark's blog you go to heidel blog or you go to listen to any of the heidelcast episodes on this it's a big deal um This two-stage justification, and a lot of times, what happens is there's there's this concept that you're kind of brought into this right relationship with God by by faith alone, in sort of the classic definition of faith. Right? It's a it's an assent to the truth, and appropriation of the truth, and arresting and receiving of that truth. But where it goes where it goes awry is some of the federal vision advocates are more explicit than others. But now there's this second phase of those who have received Christ in that first sense who now have to retain Christ in this second sense. And that's where you see things like, well, they're faith-filled people and they use sort of language games to make it seem like they're saying the same thing. But what they're really saying is if you're faithful enough, if you're obedient enough, if you are able to um, fulfill the right sacramental actions, if you persist until the end, then you will be justified in the final day on the basis of that perseverance, right? So they've taken this resting and receiving, this action and work of the Holy Spirit that we receive passively through faith, and they've made it now an active task that we have to accomplish. And so they've corrupted the gospel by adding to it perseverance as a a prerequisite for justification, and the way they do that again is they take justification they split it up into these two phases. There's initial justification which is received through faith in sort of this classic sense, and then there's this final justification which is obtained through perseverance and obedience, through faithfulness, through baptism, through taking the Lord's supper, through remaining united to the church. All of these things are now swapped out for that last component of faith, and it you can see it's just a corruption of the gospel. It's no longer about salvation by faith alone. It's now salvation by faith and perseverance or faith and baptism, faith and union with the church. And so they've just corrupted the gospel. Um, We see that in the other movements too.
0: Right. Yeah. The risk of maybe taking it too far. I would say that that third element of saving faith, the fiduciary trust, is by far the most important, the most highest of the three, which is why I stack it at the top of that pyramid. Because yeah. without that f- element, faith is just merely this intellectual exercise, much like the you know, the faith of demons, honestly, which we, we right. know scripture speaks about. So who, of course, they're going to know the truth about Jesus, but they refuse to trust him because they hate him yeah. and what they know to be true. So that element does consist, of course, like you're saying, in a personal trust in Christ as he's offered in the gospel and this complete reliance upon... Him for salvation, and that's why you see the Bible speak of that third component in passages that really emphasize on being in, believing in, abiding in. So, like when John is talking about abiding, it's more of like this resting or remaining. Right. It's not about this idea that we have to somehow again. Manufacture or perpetuate these good works, and in, in so doing, or failing to do them, then we somehow fall out of that faith or lose this cherished or desired, uh, uh, you know, place. What strikes me as odd about like this idea, where whatever it is, b- by the way, we should really be suspicious of any theological perspective that promulgates itself as Christian but creates a JV and varsity that yeah. that should always be like a red yeah. flag. Uh, always in every way. And what you're going to find actually is all the ones you just listed, they have that in common, actually. That there is some, when you pare it down, when you get to the essential core, there's this idea when hard pressed, they'll basically have to admit there is a JV and a varsity team when it comes to Christians. But all three of those elements of faith, of faith when they are present, they are, Together, man, this is like going under the Captain Planet reference. Like when they are combined, (laughs) they necessarily manifest themselves in good works, but each of them by themselves is not a good work. That's not the purpose of them. When they come together in consummate harmony under the Holy Spirit by God's empowerment, they then will automatically result in these good works. But the works themselves are not good because they substantiate or affirm or somehow buttress the three elements. It's because they are the outgrowth of those elements, but the outgrowth, like the fruit itself is not the tree. The fruit doesn't keep the tree alive. Yeah. The fruit is proof that the tree itself exists and is stalwart and is growing and is healthy, but it does not make the tree, the tree.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a good distinction too, is, is you're right that these other, um, these other I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want people to think that I'm saying that people like John Piper or John MacArthur or even Doug Wilson, although I have very strong opinions about Doug Wilson and his theology and what the implications are, I don't want people to hear me saying that I believe these people are not saved. Um, I- I'm not in a position to know that. And actually, based on what I'm saying, I-, I would be really hypocritical if I said that their their theology and their errors in these er- in this these areas have excluded them from the kingdom of god. Right. I think there's reason when someone holds certain kinds of errors to be be cautious and to be concerned for their salvation. If someone thinks that in part they are obter- obtaining justification uh, because they're receiving it through obedience or through affections or through faithfulness or in, in the terms of new paul, you know, the new, new Pauline perspective, NPP, um, in terms of receiving salvation, receiving justification through like boundary markers or through association with with certain things, there's reasons for us to be concerned about their salvation, but I'm not in a position to assess and judge and make a statement about their salvation. But all of that said, when we see these different views, there is now this gradation of, of Christianity within those views, right? Now, now someone like MacArthur or Piper to be fair and charitable, would say that justification is justification, right? You are either justified or you're not. All of the sort of secondary, second stage justification that's more prominent in Piper, but I think is probably an element of what's going on with MacArthur, especially with his dispensationalism. All of that aside, when you make something that man accomplishes, even if you you say that the Holy Spirit gives that. So John Piper is going to say, um, this sort of like treasuring Christ above all else. Um, he's going to say that the ability to treasure Christ above all else, or the state of treasuring Christ above all else that comes from the Holy spirit, the Holy spirit does that to you, but that still creates this sort of like progress within justification because you can always treasure Christ more. You can always understand how how important and how significant and how valuable Christ is. You can always understand that more. And so part of the issue with his theology, or or John MacArthur, you can always surrender more of your life. None of us are fully surrendered in this life. So there's always progress in the Christian life. And that's that in itself is not a problem, right? We acknowledge right. there's always progress in the Christian life, right? The first hot water we ever got in in this podcast was when I said that do better, try harder is the Christian life. But in that's in reference to our response to what God has done for us. When you now make the try better, do harder a part of, and whether that's affections, whether that's obedience, whether that's faithfulness and association with the church, whatever it is, when you make that part of your justification, you've now added progress into justification more classically speaking, justification is a one-time event that happens to us. It's the final eschatological judgment of God dragged and dropped from the last day right into the first day of our Christian life. And so there's it's a binary situation. You're either justified and fully justified, or you're not justified at all. But these different movements that I think are to greater and lesser degrees, but are corruptions of the gospel as a result of this misdefinition of faith, they introduce progress into justification, which is exactly, exactly the Roman Catholic position. This is why it's so dangerous to, to depart from the standard established, well-worn, time-tested definitions and understandings of the faith. Whether that's in theology proper, like we were talking about with the Thomism stuff, or whether it's in soteriology here, whether it's in definitions of what the Bible means, all of that stuff, when you depart from these well-worn definitions that have served the church well for thousands of years now, You're on dangerous ground, because without realizing it, ironically, in John Piper's book, I don't have the quotes right in front of me, and I don't have the page number, so don't don't quote me on this, but he actually acknowledges that the Roman Catholic view has some strength to it, and that, that it's asking the right questions, and that it's making the right criticisms of certain streams of Protestant theology. What he doesn't realize is that what he's doing is he's now saying that faith formed by love... Faith informed and and shaped by love and charity and affection for Christ, that's justifying faith. Well, that's 100% exactly what the Roman Catholic Church is. That's what they say. So, So it's easy enough to see how these departures from the definition of faith— Lead us to now a justification that's progressive. It grows. Your justification increases over time as your sanctification increases over time. You become more obedient, more submissive, more subordinate, more surrendered, you know, in lordship salvation. And now your justification, since that's a part of your justification, that's a prerequisite and an instrument of your justification, as those increase, so also your justification increases. That's an implication John MacArthur would reject but it's still an implication of what he has to say. And you can make that same maneuver. You can see that same kind of implication with John Piper. You just swap it out for affections or feelings or love for God or with, with Federal Vision, swap it out for good works in accord with righteousness and covenant, kind of covenant keeping, right? Or with new, new perspective on Paul, it, it really is about sort of like torah keeping, law keeping. And it's a new law, but it's still law keeping that ultimately keeps you in the covenant. And and at the last day in all of these in all of these positions, one way or another on the last day, there is an assessment that is made and if you have reached a sufficient amount or level or value if you've sufficiently persevered in the faith through love, through obedience, through covenant keeping through Torah keeping, whatever, if you've made a sufficient level, if you've persisted in that, then you will finally be justified in the faith. And that's where this becomes so dangerous and detrimental. And in some cases, it probably becomes damning because people start to trust in their own works, their own submission, their own affection for Christ, their own covenant keeping. And then now they're not trusting in Christ at all. They're not resting and receiving Christ. They're working for their justification, which is just damnable heresy. Right. This is definitely a confusion
0: between classification and piety. And you can understand how, why we would be tempted as human beings who are completely corrupt in our processing of this information to bleed the two into each other. Because there's this idea that somehow if I've increased piety, that gives me the sense that I've increased my classification as a person of yeah. faith that somehow if I'm increasingly doing these things, increasingly laying my life down, increasingly making greater sacrifice, then somehow this justifies my level of faith that's been made manifest. And on the face, I would say that argument sounds decent, but it's absolutely wrong. It's scandalously wrong because it's not what the scripture teaches us to understand. So I recently was watching this Q&A session from Uh, Alistair Begg, who I really admire as a pastor. And one of the reasons why I particularly admire him is I think he has such a practical outlet look on his own heart and his teaching. Somebody asked him a question. I forget exactly what it was, but what he said to this large group of ministers at their own conference was, he said, I sometimes think that God made me a pastor so that I would go to church every Sunday morning. (laughs) And people of course laughed. And he said, I'm serious. I sometimes think that God made me a pastor because he knew that was the only way that he could get me to go to church every Sunday morning. Yeah, There's a great amount of truth in that. And I think that, that actually applies to what we're talking about here, that faith is itself in every way a gift that God gives to us. And when he gives it to us, it manifests itself in certain ways. But I think it also sometimes, it, there, there are ways that we know it ought to manifest. For instance, in these great works that God has saved us for, but not to, or to rather, but not because of. And so I think that it's possible that at different points in our lives and seasons, we will have greater or lesser affection for Christ. But if we use that as the litmus test, you know, like, I don't know, sometimes I say like, you know, I, I don't know, love finance and and other times I say, I love my wife and I don't mean the same things by those things. And sometimes I don't particularly, you know, get along with my wife because we're having a disagreement about something. And sometimes I, I really dislike finance because it's complicated and it's burned me in some way. Yeah. All of that to say, like, all that stuff is super fleeting. So to base, like, any argument about faith on anything but what the scripture teaches us is a folly with epic consequences. We ought to just trust God. So this is the problem I see with Piper is when we say things, even when we're trying to be well-intentioned, like, we'll see that our faith is strong because it's increasing surrender. It brings in too much subjectivity. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, what we really need to say is, I can't be contrite enough, right? I can't apologize to God enough. I can't do enough good things to even justify or show that the faith that I have is real. And you know why the reason of that is because the faith is alien to me. Yeah, That real faith comes from the outside. It is in no way manufactured from within, nor can it be supported from evidence that comes from within or my own volitional effort. Instead, what we're saying is, you know what? You know how you don't have enough sacrifice in your life? No, you can't surrender enough, that's good. Because you know what real faith does? First, it understands that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who's made a way that he's just and justifier. Second, it gives assent to the fact that that is the truth about the world and about the condition of your own heart. And third, it trusts in the fact that you cannot surrender enough. And so you put all of your trust in the one who surrendered everything completely.
1: Yeah. That is what faith says, and that is what faith does. Yeah, that that's the brass tacks of this, right? And, and I just want to compare and contrast the experience of someone in lordship salvation. And I'm, I'm making this up. I don't have anyone specific in mind, but the experience of someone in lordship salvation or in Piperism trying to seek assurance of their salvation versus someone in this classical definition, right? The person who's following Piper's theology, which says that knowledge of facts assent to their truth and affection for Jesus Christ is the definition of faith. When they want to look to see if they are in the faith that they're justified, they're going to look inside themselves and they're going to ask, am I do I love Jesus enough? Am I do I treasure him above all other things? And every single time that they do that, they're going to realize I do not. Right? I don't treasure Jesus above all other things. I have not fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. There are still parts of my life that I hold tightly to that do not honor the Lord and that would cast me into hell forever. That is a recipe for ongoing, complete despair. Contrast that now to the person who looks at their life in this classical sense and says, Am I justified? And they look at, they go, I don't love Jesus as much as I should. I have not surrendered myself to Jesus as much as I should. Oh Lord, please. I trust you to save me. Despite the fact that I still hold back these things from you. Right. Have mercy. Despite the fact that I don't love you like I should. Despite the fact that in the last 30 seconds, I have committed treason that deserves hell in thought and word and deed. That's the difference. So my assurance, although it's certainly encouraging to me when I see progress in my Christian life, right? We should look for fruit. The Bible tells us to look for fruit in our life. And the lack or absence of fruit is something that should drive us back to Christ. It's not something that should give us a lack of assurance. Now, if we have no fruit and we're not trusting Christ, then we have no claim to justification. But when we perceive a lack of fruit in our life, we shouldn't question our justification. We should instead right. go to the source of our justification and thank him that he has justified us. Trust right. him more. So that that's the practical difference in this, right? This may seem like definite, oh, this is another definitions po- episode. This is another fine nuance episode. Like it's not. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That no matter how how unsurrendered you are in your worst moments, no matter how much you actually hate God in your inner being. Right in your worst moments, how much you are angry with him, how much you reject his law, how much you refuse to keep it. If you truly trust Christ and you are his, there is nothing that will keep him from saving you. And that's what faith is, is the trust, the utter trust in that reality that no matter what it seems like, no matter how bad it seems, if Christ has chosen to save me and he has made me his, then I am his and he has set me free indeed. That's the biblical gospel not this lordship salvation stuff about salvation by obedience, salvation by surrender, salvation by repentance, right? right? Not John Piper's salvation by affection, salvation by affectional elements, or, or any of these other things we're talking about. It's about knowing that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and trusting him to do what he said he did. That's the biblical faith. So I, I, I'm glad we did this. I think this is... This is an element of soteriology that I think gets overlooked because it is so. Faith is one of those words that I think we all kind of like think we know what it means. We think we understand it because we're Christians, we have faith, we understand what sola fide means, but we really, a lot of times, we really don't. And it can be really dangerous if we don't take time to step back and think through this definition and understand the implications of getting it wrong.
0: Right. And we need to be vigilant, loved ones, in protecting. language that we use to describe it because not only is it destructive like you've said tony when it there is like a clear bifurcation of those two things like there's something that i do but even we use a little language when we say things like you know when i found jesus or when i came to jesus yeah um these things betray that we're in some way trying to make this case promulgating this idea that faith at some point has something to do with us which is why like I, i think and this is so great that Calvinists, we'll use the pejorative term, are so militant and vigilant to make this effort to say that faith is always this gift. It starts with God and it ends with God. Yeah, And that for us to have those three things, it's because God and his great mercy, not because we came to him with arms outstanding, not because we somehow realized we were part of the deserving poor and came before him, but just because of his great mercy. He gives us faith, and it's this robust idea in the scriptures. So, like, it's easy for us to understand how faith is used elsewhere, like in Jude three, when the church is to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. They were realizing, well, the faith and obviously it's, it's the good news. It is the the full, overarching, salvific plan of God that He delivers to us by both His action and uh, giving it to us in knowledge that we can understand. That is true just everywhere, heart, Bunch, full stop. God God does all that stuff. So if you see it there and you say, oh yeah, that's clearly God, I would submit to you that the faith that you have that you're understanding using in this colloquial or vernacular sense of being in relationship with God and trusting him, as, as you said, Tony, that he is everything that he is and he has done everything that he has done and he has provided everything that he has said he's applied, that is the same thing. And in every way it comes from God. And when there's a compromise of that, The slope is steep, precipitous, and slippery, and you'll fall. You'll fall, and it'll be to your own harm, because you'll fall in this life by bearing under this weight that was never meant for you to bear, that Jesus Christ has borne on our behalf. And it is, I'm telling you, loved ones, this is the faith we want, the faith that the Bible describes to us, the one that comes to us from the outside, that saves us through the Holy Spirit application of Christ's death on the cross by the Father's plan for us. That is the one we want. Because as you said, Tony, it's the kind that can never be snatched away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to try to add to that, Jesse. I think that's the gospel <laughs> and I'm going to go run through a wall. <laughs> we're, or, we're just
0: preaching the gospel or now. Or this run is against a troop news. or jump
1: over a wall. I don't even know what I'm going to do. Whatever you want. I've we have got just one Kool-Aid thing to say about this. it. Is, oh, yeah.
0: So, oh, yeah.
1: Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love that brotherhood.